You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. episode of Core Curriculum. The Core Curriculum is a podcast where we walk slowly and thoughtfully through Columbia University's uh, Great Books Reading List. The book that we're working through in this season is the second Homeric epic, The Odyssey, and tonight we're talking about books 17 through 18. Uh, I'm David Grubbs. Uh, I'm from Sugarland, Texas, and you've my, if you listen to other podcasts on this network, you have probably heard me on the Christian Humanist podcast, Christian Humanist profiles, but I do Muppet movie style cameos uh, around the network very, at various times. Uh, with me tonight is uh, Michael Farmer and Katie Grubbs. So, Michael, where are you from and where might our listeners have heard you? Well, I am in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Our listeners may remember that last season uh, I was in Woodstock, Georgia. My wife and I have finally bought a house, and we're living in Sandy Springs now. And they've heard me on the Christian Humanist podcast, Christian Humanist Profiles. Before they were live, I think I have been on every show other than Book of Nature at one point or another, which uh, is either a testament to how much free time I have or how incredibly insightful I am. (laughs) <laughs> it could be both. Uh, Katie, uh, well, where where are you from, and where might they have heard you? Um, I live in Sugarland, Texas, and I am usually I'm a regular in the Christian Feminist podcast, so that's my usual hangout. But I've also been on Sectarian Review multiple times, and um, during various network crossovers, I think I've been on Christian Humanist. Um. I think that's it. I don't know that I've ever been on uh, Book of Nature or City of Man or anything like that. So, hey, uh, I think there's only one Halloween crossover that's ever been where you and I were not on the same show together. I haven't signed up for this. I year, know, right? It's probably airing <laughs> has already aired by the time this episode airs, and so maybe our listeners will find out if we're together once again. I know. I, I haven't signed up either, so yeah, it's still a mystery. I, I, I'm, I'm waiting to decide. I've only seen two of the movies. Well. Uh, that is also something to listen for, uh, dear listener. Uh, the the annual Halloween crossover for the Christian Humanist Radio Network always Which again fun. has probably already happened by the time this airs. Just in terms of when we're recording this and how long it's going to take to edit them all. So, I'm, and this is so late in the in the series. So, I'm I'm pretty sure that those episodes aired a month ago by the time everybody's hearing this. But it's still mid August when we're recording them. So, right. Well, and if you enjoy the uh, this year's crossover uh, listener and, the, and you're new uh, new to uh, our programs, go back and look at last year and the year before. We've been doing those crossovers for a while, and every year they're they're just so much fun. But tonight's conversation, as I said, is Homer's Odyssey. Can we start by saying which translations we're using in as we? talk tonight yeah i am um i I mostly read robert fagel's but that's only because my copy of stanley lombardo was in the pod with all our other books so once we got all our books out i started using lombardo so I'll, i'll probably switch back and forth between the two of them lombardo is my favorite though okay i'm using fagel's uh but that's not the one that uh, I first encountered the Odyssey in, um, but I'm not going to talk about that one because Katie can talk about it. Yeah, I'm using um, Samuel Butler's translation. Oh, wow. Fashion. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, 1944. It's the one that we had on the shelf here at home, and it's a prose translation, as David said it's the first one that he read when he was a kid so when I, I showed him the one I was reading he got kind of misty with remembrance um, but it, it was just it was the it was the only one that we had here at home that was printed and I always prefer to read a printed text than to read a screen Same. so I went very old-fashioned this week and I'm reading Samuel Butler 
we actually now have four or five copies of both the Iliad and the Odyssey because we each preferred to read print and we wanted our own translations and we already had other translations that were in the pod. So our, uh, our study here is now a, uh, kind of repository of Homeric translation. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. Well, book 17, uh, of course, follows book 16 and, uh, the, the action at the start of this book. Uh, and again, you know, reminder, dear listener, if, if I, I assume that, that you've been listening through this series in order, but if you happen to somehow, um, stumble upon this particular episode in isolation, uh, when we say book talking about the Homeric epics, we don't mean that there's some giant stack of tomes like the Wheel of Time or something like that. It's chapter. Uh, a book in the Odyssey is a, a chapter. But the story in, in book 17 is just a continuation of what happens uh, in, the previous, uh, in the previous chapter uh, in which uh, Odysseus, disguised as a beggar, uh, has returned to Ithaca, uh, has been uh, sheltered, offered shelter by uh, the pig keeper Eumaeus, and has also encountered and revealed his identity to his son, Telemachus. So, uh, just with that, with that groundwork, now the, now comes the, the, uh, what, what I, what I call, uh, in, when I teach this in class, the, the undercover boss, uh, episode of the Odyssey. (laughs) I love it. So, I mean, can can we maybe talk a little bit about why why is Odysseus going undercover boss? Uh, I know it, it's probably been touched on in the previous episode, but just so much that he does in this particular uh, in this particular book is is part of that that larger logic of why doesn't he just you know storm the castle? It's almost like he can't help himself, don't you think? It, it's uh, Odysseus is so defined by his ability to dissimulate that he he it's it's almost like it's against his will. I I, it, I I don't remember there being a passage earlier where he sits down and says, "Well, this is what I'm going to do. This is my plan." <laughs> it's like this is what comes natural to him. He lies everywhere. He tells these tall tales. He it, like it's it's just who he is. It's his great skill. So why not do it here too? Yeah, I think it. I mean, I think it's in keeping with his the emphasis on his cleverness. Um, it it makes sense to me and seems kind of pragmatic that you would sneakity sneak into town and kind of get the lay of things before, so that you could figure out a plan, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to coming in guns blazing because he's one person. Like he's Odysseus, but he's still just one person, and so you know, kind he doesn't of, know who's still loyal to him. Exactly. Yeah, so kind of coming in on the down low, and in some ways it does feel a lot like Henry V going out to the battlefield disguised, listening to everybody talk crap about him, but I think it's more tactical than that. Um, and, you know, he's trying to figure out um, how he wants to proceed, and so it's, you know, it's surveillance with a purpose. But I do think you're right, Michael. I also think his, his you know, usual first move is some kind of dissimulation or deception. Right, if it was Achilles... He would just go in with a battle axe and chop everybody's heads off, which is, you know, spoiler alert, eventually what Odysseus is going to do anyway. But it, it's like Odysseus's <laughs> method of proving his manliness, his virtue, is to be creative in his self-presentation. Yeah. Yeah, he he's not... Uh, he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger in any number of you know late '80s and early '90s action films. It's Bronze Age Mission Impossible, and that's part of why I like him. He's the closest thing to a ninja we're going to get in the Homeric epics, and I I love that. Well, I mean, he has the actual ninja scene in what is it, Book Six of the Iliad? Him and uh, Diomedes. Yeah, yeah, when they uh they kill the guy with the weasel hat. Yeah. That's fun. Uh 
so sneaking sneaking up, um, well, Telemachus heads first, meets his mother, uh, who, well, her, her reaction uh, is actually remarkably measured, given how much she's worried about him over the past, I don't know, what is it, since he left at the end of, what, book two? <laughs> it's been 15 books since she's seen him. Uh, and, but nonetheless, she's been very worried. Um, and then, uh, I found it very interesting that Mentor is here. Did y'all notice that? I did not. Yeah. Um, when he gets, when he gets home, uh, the suitors are in the court of Odysseus, but so are the older men who were his father's loyal friends on the island, including Mentor, the guy that Athena was impersonating the whole time. So uh, I found that I found that kind of interesting. You it's know, a good he, thing that Telemachus picked up pretty quickly that it was really Athena, or he could have a very embarrassing conversation with Mentor. He could think that Mentor <laughs> was, like, slipping into dementia or something. What do you mean you don't remember? We just, we just say it as a <laughs> <laughs> and you turned into a bird and flew. Oh yeah, yeah. Or maybe mentors a time lord. I don't know. Uh, what what in the scene do you find uh, do you find interesting or remarkable? Because I, I, what I want to what what I am inclined to pay attention to is what all of the dirty, grimy underside of Ithacan society is doing in in these chapters, you know, with the pig keepers and, you know, the beggars and the, that awful goat herd. But, you know, there might be some interesting things happening on the upper crust too. What strikes me about this scene is Telemachus's response to his mother, because, because the Odyssey begins not with Odysseus. Odysseus doesn't show up until what, five or six books in. Yeah. The first four books are all about Telemachus trying to learn how to be a man. And it seems that this ordeal he's been through going to Sparta and, uh, and Nestor's um, city, which I can never, is it called Pylos? Pylos, yeah. It, it seems to have turned him into the man that he wanted to be. And, and part of that is kind of dispatching his mother uh, so he says, um, this is, oh, it's like line 50 in Lombardo, but of course the line numbers will all be different. Don't wait, make me weep mother or get me all worked up. I barely escaped with my life. Now bathe yourself and put on clean clothes. Then go to your bedroom upstairs with your maids and vow formal sacrifice to the immortal gods in the hope that Zeus will grant us vengeance. I'm going to town so I can invite to our house a stranger who came to me here from Pylos. So he, he, he is, he's in charge now. Like he, he's been given the capability of actually running things. So when we first meet him at the beginning of the poem, he's just kind of sitting around chewing on his fingernails, worrying about what the suitors are going to do to him and to his mother. Now he's the man of the house. Now, you know, this involves him inheriting some attitudes toward his mother that maybe we don't approve of in 2020. But I think in the world of the poem, um, we're supposed to see this as Telemachus really having crossed that threshold from boyhood into manhood. We, we see rumblings of this earlier in the poem, but to me, when he speaks to her like this, it, it calls back to the way he spoke to her just before he left, and it shows that this voyage into manhood is, is complete, more or less. Yeah. I, this is a fun passage uh, of the, the beginning of the poem, the first time that he sasses his mama as he's grown up. Um, but then when he returns and he's just so peremptory, yeah, uh, that this is really fun for me, uh, in class because, you know, my, my school, like most schools in higher education nowadays is, um, majority female, right? So most of my classes are, you know, it's 60, 40 women to men. Uh, and then you layer on the, uh, the demographic realities of teaching, uh, at a university 
um, within the beltway of Southwest Houston. And everyone in my class knows that you don't talk to your mama that way. <laughs> right. right. Whether, whether you're, whether you're from Texas or whether you're from South, South Asia, you don't talk to your mother that way. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like, regardless of all of the, 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 the cultural diversity going on in my classroom, they all unite in, yeah, I'd get slapped. <laughs> it's like, it, it reminds me a little bit of the way Jesus speaks to Mary at Cana. What yeah. woman, what, what does this yeah. have to do with you and me? <laughs> Except what I love about that scene in Cana is that Mary just kind of completely ignores the question and just assumes she, he's going to go along with her. And, and Penelope doesn't really do that. Yeah. Uh, but, but that, that is what the, the scene kind of reminds me of. Well, let's just say that in class I have to kind of talk them around to to not being angry at Telemachus, uh, to kind of talk them around to saying, to, to seeing this within its cultural context as this is a moment in which, as you say, Michael, he, he actually steps up and is behaving like the head of the household that he legally and de facto ought to be. Right. Um, Right. If he was deferring to his mother in the way that we might, he would, it, it would be a sign that he was imperfectly masculine. I think, you know, I'm not an expert in ancient Greek conceptions of gender, but that's certainly my, um, that's certainly my impression. Yeah. Well, I mean, the dude's 20. Right. Right. How old is Odysseus? Victoria and I were talking oh. about that. Cause like Odysseus, there's a real chance he's 35 years old, right? I, you know, or forties. Yeah, he's up, not fifty. Forties. Yeah, because he was supposed to be. Um, of course, this is all stuff that's not necessarily in Homer, and you've got all the different versions and all the rest of it. But he seems he's presented in the the various stories that we turn to about what happens before the Iliad. He's presented as as a young husband who has just had his first child with his new wife. Right. So that would, I mean, culturally that would put him upper teens, early twenties. Right. right. The, the age that Telemachus is now may be younger than Telemachus is now. So, so the idea that even that Telemachus would take this long to become a man. Now, part of that is he hasn't had a father. Yeah. And so all he has for a father, he has these kind of replacement fathers like mentor, but all he has for an actual father is this kind of legend that has grown up around Odysseus. He doesn't even know if he's dead or alive. Yeah. So, like, you can forgive him for taking some time in in stepping into this role, but I, I do think it's supposed to quicken our pulse a little bit when we see that he's done it finally. Like, Telemachus is the man he's supposed to be, and he's going to prove that in a few books by – uh Absolutely murdering everyone who has ever treated him poorly in Ithaca. <laughs> Just slaughtering them. Yeah. One little Spoiler bit. Alert. Yeah. One little bit of self-presentation. Um, it's not just the way that he's treating his mother, but immediately after those lines that you were reading, Michael, um, he enters the banquet room where the suitors are. And I'm reading Fagel's spear in hand. Telemachus strode on through the hall and out and a pair of sleek hounds went trotting at his heels. So he's carrying a spear and he's got dogs on either side of him, um, which, you know, listener, if you listen to this in order, uh, you heard the episode talking about book two and uh in book two, there's a public assembly in Ithaca, and the way that Telemachus prints himself, presents himself in this public forum as an adult male who should be listened to in this in this discourse of the wise, right. he shows up with a spear flanked by hounds. Um, you know, he's presenting himself as a warrior aristocrat, and they're impressed. Uh, Go ahead, Katie. Well, that's what I was going to say at the end of book eighteen. Um, when he kind of comes forward and soothes everyone down after this conflict over the over beggar Odysseus, it says the suitors bit their lips and marveled at the boldness of his speech. You know, they're all kind of shocked that he's um, kind of, you know, being bold enough to say, guys, don't do that. You know, just kind of stand up for himself. I mean, not in a, not in a super strong way and 
like he's not being militant with them, but that he's talking to them as he would talk, as, you know, he's talking to them as, as an equal, as a, as a, an adult man. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that Telemachus would seem to me to be the one who has the reason to dissimulate. And he does to some extent, but not the way Odysseus does. Because cause we mm-hmm. know from the almost the very beginning of the poem that these suitors are going to kill Telemachus as soon as they get an opportunity to. And he knows it, too, right? Doesn't doesn't Athena tell him? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And yet he he does not really he doesn't really pretend the way that his father does. They're they're connected people, but they're they're separate people and their virtues are similar and they dovetail. And, of course, they work together here at the end of the of the poem, but they're also not the same. And, you know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Some of his conversation in private, we don't get as much of that in this book. Most of what we get in this book is public Telemachus. Uh, but private Telemachus still has some anxiety about how they're going to deal with these guys. Maybe the way that he is like his father is not in pretending to be someone else, but in the way that he puts on a bold front to kind of bluff them and cow them by um, being being very publicly uh, commanding, you know, to 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 not show them a weakness so that they spring in and exploit it. Just think of the first time you stepped into a classroom. At age 22 or 23, however old you, David, I think you were a little bit older, but you know, you're a, you're a kid and you're standing in front of people who are five years younger than you. Most of them, most of them are probably smarter than you. Many of them are probably smarter than you. And all you've got is this like veneer of respectability that you have to maintain long enough for them to love you and then not destroy you. <laughs> That's yeah. Hard, I guess. Yeah. Oh man, you're giving me flashbacks, my dude. It helped that I had a full beard. Yeah, well, I, I think it's easier for women. I mean, I was I was six foot three and had a full beard too. I think women, correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, really have to go through that. Really have to do this kind of bluffing thing. I was gonna say um, the the way you described it is not exactly you know the idea of you know, giving a veneer of respectability till they love you. When you're a female teacher, it's more like having a veneer of sternness until they respect you. Yeah. If they decide to respect you at some point. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit different. I did, I did used to fantasize about literally deceiving my students. When I was a very young teacher, I used to kind of fantasize every semester about sitting in my own classroom while they were coming in before the first day of class as if I was a student and listen to what they were saying about the class. Very and then, and then stand up and start teaching, but I never had the guts to actually do it. Um, it would have been fun. And yeah, I was very close, um, to their age when I, when I started. So yeah. And that, yeah, that would have been very Odysseus, I think. Well, and I did actually, I did have, and this is not, this was not deception. This was just true. I did have a semester when I was taking Italian at EGA and I was in Italian class with some of my own students. Oh, wow. So we were students together and then we would walk, literally walk across the street the next period. I taught them. Do they call you Ms. Norman in Italian class too? Uh, I don't know that they, we, you know, when you're in a class together, you don't always use modes of address, right? Like you don't always call people by their names. Well, Um, I guess they call you Senora. I guess. But it it was a really awkward experience. I ended up writing a paper about it because right after that happened, I took retcomp theory. And um, I wrote a, like a pedagogy paper about what it was like being in a class with my students, but also teaching my students in the same semester. And while at the same time, the grad student teaching my Italian class treated me differently than the rest of the class. He would want to like gossip with me about what grad school was like and how mean major professors are. And I was always trying to be like, stop. <laughs> I'm trying to, while I'm here, I want to be a student. Um, anyway. and, and see, Telemachus' um, position is even stranger though, right? Because it's like, he steps into that freshman comp classroom and instead of um, instead of a bunch of 19-year-olds staring back at him with daggers in their eyes, it's a bunch of guys who want to sleep with his mother. Right. It's like we're in a it's like we're in a raunchy 90s teen comedy. Right. Because they know who he is or they think they know who he is. Right. They know who he was until he went through this. um kind of ordeal that has made him into somebody new. 
Yeah. Pretty cool. I the, the thing I always forget when I turn away from the Odyssey and come back to it is how much this is a poem about Telemachus. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the, the parts everybody remembers are the kind of fun, sexy Star Trek uh, <laughs> Odysseus parts, right? The, the parts that have the the really deep emotional resonance for me are the Telemachus and Penelope parts. Maybe because I've never sailed around the world, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but like he, what what better what better book could there be to teach to college students? Than this thing about trying to figure out who you are in relation to your parents. Yeah, that's great, and that hadn't occurred to me before, but I think that's spot on. Yeah, that's my experience. Um, that they, they they really connect to uh, that Telemachus's sense of being dumped on unprepared in a world that is basically full of human jackals waiting for him to show weakness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether that's the per- your perception or your reality, that kind of uh, anxiety as you enter as you enter in adulthood is is I am unprepared for what I'm about to step into and I am going to get eaten alive. And all that Telemachus can do back in book one is fantasize about daddy dropping out of the sky with a sword. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now he's the one showing up with dogs and a spear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that I, I, uh, stepping up to believe that you can be your own hero is a powerful moment in in epic in hero myth around the world and in the experience of growing up. It, well, and and it makes it so that when he finally does meet his father, whom again I, we haven't met. You know, he he doesn't know his father. He's, he he spent all these years not having one. When he finally meets him, he meets him not as a son and a father. They meet as equals. They are going to they're going to march into this side by side together. Yeah. Very cool. Very very. The I do want to get to uh, the 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 goat herd at least. Because uh, it's the swineherd who executes Eumaeus, who escorts uh, Odysseus in his beggar disguise um, into Ithaca. So uh, he, the first person that they encounter is this uh, fellow by the name of Melanthius. Um, it's uh, Brown Line two thirty one in Fagels. Um, but it's it's very shortly after um this this the scene that we were just talking about uh and melanthius it, at first when you show up in ithaca and you see the nice kindly swineherd you think maybe this is going to be some kind of like a class thing like like Odysseus's servants are kind of loyal and pining for the return of the king, um, and and then you've got the suitors who have who are kind of their, you know, kind of brutish, aristocratic oppressors. So that Odysseus is is, is going to come back as some kind of like ironic Robin Hood, except that's not what's happening because Melanthius the goat herd is on the suitors' side. Do y'all have any like? Do y'all have any observations about this particular scene, about the, the this this interaction between characters who are kind of on the bottom of the ladder as Telemachus is, you know, climbing to the top of the ladder? It's a weird moment. I because you're right. It, it it's I don't know what to make of it because he it's not even like. Uh, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we're ever given a reason why Melanthius is on the side of the suitors, particularly. Um, you know, I don't know that we're told that they treat him great, you know, or that he's some kind of worm tongue figure who's like, you know, loyal to to the usurpers. I, You know, so it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense to me that he would be anti-Odysseus. And then, you know, and then the swineherd speaks up for for Odysseus. So it is it's just this weird moment of um 
intra-class conflict because they're kind of part of the same class. But I, I don't know. It, it, it's kind of strange. My favorite part, if I'm being honest, my favorite part of that whole scene is when he kicks Odysseus. And uh, Odysseus, uh, for a moment, he doubted whether or, not, whether or no to fly at Melanthius and kill him with his staff or fling him to the ground and beat his brains out. Is how Butler says it, and in but he resolved, however, to endure it and keep himself in check, which I feel like that's very Odysseus to go. Somebody kicked me. I'm gonna beat his brains out. But then you know he's able to keep himself, you know, stick to the plan. Um, it's just really funny. But I I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a I don't have an explanation for this scene. It's just kind of funny. What about you, Michael? The, the totally pointless cruelty that Melanthius shows this beggar, right? He doesn't know it's Odysseus. And and as soon as he sees him, he says these horrible things to him. Um, it, it shows you that not only is he a bad judge of character in the sense that he's he's teamed up with these um, these suitors who are clearly in the wrong. He just like he's ready to be cruel when when given the slightest amount of power. When finding someone who's even lower on the social hierarchy than he is, he immediately. Uh, he immediately uses it to his advantage. It's not even an advantage, right? It's just like he enjoys being cruel. Yeah. But I don't know enough about this culture. Maybe it's just, you know, the perception of, of the animals that they care for in, in kind of a hierarchy of cleanliness in you know, in, in this culture where I, where I grew up, you know, I, I guess I would tend to think that maybe a goat herd has more stature than a swine herd, but that's, you know, just cause I think of swine as, you know, dirtier and yuckier and goats as, I don't know. I, I don't know much about goats, I guess. I mean, but, goats are mean. So maybe he's, absor- I mean, they just, you know, they're pretty jerky. Maybe he's absorbed the attitude of, the, of his livestock from, uh, you know, from being out with the, with the goats all the time. I have to ask you guys, and I know this is ridiculous, but I have to ask um, quickly how you guys imagine the suitors. Because I just now realized what we were talking that in my head, when I imagine the suitors, they're all Biff from Back to the Future. <laughs> that was his name, right? Biff? Biff. Oh, yes. Yeah, they're, all, they're all Biff Tannen. From Back to the Future, in in my head, that's what they all look like. Well, and there's a Biff Tannen quality to them, right? Like that that scene in the first Back to the Future when he's he has borrowed George's car and he's he's wrecked it because he's drunk, and he comes home and he opens the refrigerator and he says, "I have your car towed to your house, and all you've got for me is light beer." That's a that's that's very yes. much something the suitors would say. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, especially the Antonus guy. He's he's say the, hi to your the, mom for me. Yeah, he's yep. the Biff Tannenist of them all. That's awesome. Yeah, they do they do very much have that uh, teen jock bullies from movies in the eighties feel to them. Um, well, there's a real mediocrity to them, and yet they're powerful. You can't do anything about them. Yeah. Like that's, that's what makes, that's what makes Biff so despicable aside from, you know, him trying to rape Lorraine and, and stuff like, like and, and aside from the stuff he actually does, who he is, what's so frustrating is he's this obviously inadequate person who, especially in the second movie, when he, when he gets the sports almanac manages to accrue all the power in the universe. <laughs> and and there's there's something about that that's so frustrating and and when you put it that way, Katie, you really understand much more what it's like to be poor Telemachus, who has had to watch this for twenty years. He's literally living in 1985A. I guess not literally. He's figuratively <laughs> living in 1985A from Back to the Future too. You made a mistake in bringing that movie up because I'm always ready to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I and I hadn't thought. I, I forget a lot too. I'm glad you said that about the length of time because I think I forget just how long this is supposed to have been going on because so much of the story you're follow of the whole thing you're following Odysseus I kind of forget that that this is what they've been dealing with for you know 20 years um and so I think that's that's worth pointing out um I and David I don't know what you were going to talk about next but there was there's one part in book 17 that was my favorite part 
um, that I wanted to, to see if you guys had thoughts about. Can we do that, or do you, did you have a different question you wanted to do next? I, I don't want to move on to a different topic just yet, but kind of bridging on what you all are saying about the the inadequacy of, you know, this room full of biffs. And, but but it's not just biffs that are in the room. There's also the old mentor guys. Um, but as you as the camera pans across this, I don't I can't even imagine what the noble hall of Odysseus would look like. I'm imagining there's probably columns and you know kind of low couches where everybody's reclining or something like that. But as the camera pans across this room, you see a whole lot of. Older teenagers, young 20s, and then you see sort of 60 pluses. Uh-huh. And what's missing is the men in the middle. The generation that went to war. The generation that went to war and didn't come back because they were Odysseus's crew. Huh. You know, so, so when you think about what's going on in Ithaca, think about what's not going on in Ithaca. And that is this this absence of a generation that is strong enough to be powerful in the society, but wise enough to use that power rightly. Um, mm. But what you see in that room is wisdom without power and power without wisdom. That's good. And also there's the dog. But before, <laughs> but what's your favorite part, Katie? <laughs> The part, the dog part is nice, um, even though I'm not really a dog person. But the part that, that I really noticed this time when I read it is when he first, right before the dog, it's right before the dog thing. Um, when he first gets to the house, they come up to the house, and it's it's his reaction to his, to seeing his home again for the first time in so long. And so the way that Butler says it is, then Odysseus took hold of the swineherd's hand. He grabs his hand. So they're like holding hands and said, you may ask this house of Odysseus is a very fine place. No matter how far you go, you will find few like it. One building keeps following on after another. The outer court has a wall with battlements all around it. The doors are double folding and of good workmanship. It would be a hard matter to take it by force of arms. And he so he's kind of uh, and then he, he mentions that he hears people banqueting within and there's a smell of roast meat and he hears the sound of music. And I, I love that he takes his hand. Mm-hmm. It's just a really sweet kind of. It's that nostalgia, and I, part of it, it does a lot of jobs. One thing is it tells you, it should tell the swineherd this is not a simple beggar because he knows everything about this house. He knows what the inside of this house looks like. It has fancy folding doors um, and, you know, things of that nature. And as far as the swineherd knows, this guy, wait, is he in on the secret? I can't remember. No, the swineherd doesn't know. Okay, yeah, that should be that should be a red flag to him then that there's more to this beggar than meets the eye because he knows everything about the inside of this house. But I just I loved the that connection of Odysseus with this space, with his physical home, um, you know, because we think all the time about, oh, he's away from his wife. We think about Odysseus and Penelope or, oh, his son grew up without him. And it's and all that's super sad. And it's all, you know mostly the emotional content in the book, but I love this moment because it focused in on that's not all he lost. He didn't just lose people. He Mm -hmm. lost a physical place that was clearly really important to him. And that was his, you know, home where, where he, um, where, you know, his, the important life events happened. And that, I just noticed that particularly this time and didn't remember ever noticing that moment before. I love that he, yeah, that he takes his hand is so special. In that moment, maybe, maybe he's just acting the role, you know, as someone who is closer to the swineherd station in life than, you know, than is, you know, the, the reality of, you know, really he's the master and the other, and, and the other guy's the servant. But still you get the, you know, yes, this is his house and Eumaeus is part of his, his household. Um, a long time faithful person in his household, and you see the, you know, in in previous books, and I'm I'm, I'm sure it was talked about in uh, probably the the last episode, listener, um, the relationship that Telemachus has with the swineherd. Um, Tele- uh, Eumaeus has dogs; he has guard dogs, and when Telemachus comes to the house of Eumaeus, uh, Eumaeus's dogs don't bark. 
right? And that meant the same thing back then that it means now. Those dogs didn't bark because they knew Telemachus, because Telemachus was here often enough for the dogs to know him as a friend. And so, you know, where does Telemachus get this? Maybe, Maybe he gets it from Odysseus, so that when Odysseus is sort of returning home and he sees home and he's standing next to this man who is who is part of home for him, um, that he has this uh, this moment of you know of affection and powerful emotion that he can't really completely share. He has to give a speech as if he's just an admiring stranger, but the way that he behaves shows that there's something else behind it. Yeah. And then sweet old Argos. Um, this is such a, this is such a trope. The dog yeah. admits the master. We sometimes forget how old these tropes are. We just think, oh, what a cliche. <laughs> I guess this one has been cliched since, you know, like 750 BC. <laughs> Maybe it was a cliche even then. Maybe Homer's original audience were like, oh, not another dog gag. well i guess it's different from the crying horses and the alien oh me well now we have undercover boss now uh now we actually get to see the way that odysseus um and the suitors behave in this scene uh this is something just just to sort of start off, as he's entering this space, Athena pops up and tells uh, instructs Odysseus, and this is around just before line four hundred in Fagels. Uh, Athena urges the son of Laertes, uh, "Go now, gather crusts from all the suitors, test them, so we can tell the innocent from the guilty." So, you know, he, he's he's a spy, but there's also something judicial going on here in some sense, right? And the and the standard is what the standard is throughout the Odyssey, which is how hospitable are you? I'm sure by this point, um, our listeners have heard this from every panel <laughs> on the book because it's such a dominant theme. But um, yeah, it, of of course, this is what. Of course, this is how you test how good the suitors are. And of course, they're all going to fail the test anyway. Because even though they're taking advantage of somebody else's hospitality, they've got nothing to spare for uh, for anybody else. Well, I mean, some of them, some of them give him food. Um, Antonus, who's, you know, just the worst, the Bif- the Biftanianist of them, uh he he's a lot like um he's a lot like the goat herd in that as soon as beggar odysseus walks in he just begins with the insults uh but uh it says uh antonus uh line round line 450 uh, if all the suitors gave him the sort of gift I'll give, the house will be rid of him for three whole months. And with that, from under the table, he seized the stool that propped his feet as he reveled and lifted it into view, like he's going to throw the stool. But as for the rest, all gave the beggar, all gave to the beggar and filled his sack with handouts. And he seemed at the point of going back to the door sill when he returns to Antonus, you know, to test him again. Um, and this time Antonus actually does throw the stool. <laughs> uh, the he'd all, but he'd already tested him, right? He'd already gone up. He'd already you know presented himself as someone in need of charity. Why does he return to Antonus? Why does he goad him? That's uh, I find that so interesting. The way that he's covertly testing, but also sort of. Pushing them, um, goading them to even go further. It's actually a little unsettling because Antonus might have been, I don't know, he wouldn't have been a better person if Odysseus had pushed. 
I mean, is, is it better or worse that Odysseus goads him into actual violence? Well, we know that even if he, even if he does give in and do the right thing, Athena at least has no intention of sparing any of them. I was trying to find it, Michael, because yeah. doesn't she, in one of these two chapters doesn't it say something like that Athena wanted um, wanted them to be even more embittered against him? Um, here's against here's what here's what uh, Lombardo says, and this is about line three ninety. Athena drew near to him and prompted him to go among the suitors and beg for crusts and so learn which of them were decent men and which were scoundrels, not that the goddess had the slightest intention of sparing any of them. Yeah. Yeah. So what the heck? Yeah, Odysseus thinks, I'm deciding who deserves to live and who deserves to die. But Athena has a completely different intention. I found it. Oh, it's in. It, there's another moment. I, that one you're talking about, Michael, was really good. And I, I'm sorry, there aren't any numbers in Butler, um, but it's uh, it's when Odysseus is talking to the the maid servants. One maid servant is like being kind of insolent to Odysseus, and he calls her a vixen, and you know gets upset. But it says, um, <laughs> but Sugar Athena, <laughs> right? Um, when it's when he's holding up the torches and looking at the people, and it says, but Athena would not let the suitors for one moment cease their insolence, for she wanted Odysseus to become even more bitter against them. She therefore set Eurymachus' son Apollobus on to jibe at him, which made the others laugh. It made me think of in the Bible when um, in, in Exodus we're told that God deliberately hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Uh-huh. After because, Pharaoh's already hardened his own heart. Yes, to make certain what's going to happen. Um, and it, it, but I notice it. And, and I mean, just Athena though, um, throughout it's, it's really interesting. I had forgotten just how much she's directing every single thing that happens mm-hmm. like, like a puppet master. I mean, it's not, she's not making suggestions, you know, um, multiple times. She's even just to the point of improving people's appearances. Like when he first comes in with the dogs and the spear or whatever, it says (laughs) that she made him look so handsome and noble that everybody's like, oh, he looks great. And she does the same thing later with Penelope. Um, You know, she leaves nothing up to them. Athena doesn't leave anything up to them, really, even if they think that they're like you said, if they think they're making he thinks he's making choices. He's not really. And that's really interesting. Yeah, she's constantly giving her favorites a makeover. Uh, yeah, he, she can't just sort of trust that Odysseus is going to be clever. She also has to. Well, it it it, it talked about it in the in the fight that he has with another beggar at the beginning of book eighteen. That as he's prepa- yeah, as he's preparing to fight this other beggar, Athena makes him more muscly. <laughs> So that the suitors are like, wow, this this old guy's, you know, he did not skip leg day. Uh, so uh, why why? But Athena wants her her guy to be awesome, whether it's Odysseus or whether it's Telemachus, she wants her guy to be admired, and so she she sort of like sprinkles awesome dust on them. Well, to really... play Nathan Gilmore for a minute, I mean. It's it's describing a more or less natural phenomenon, right? You've you've met people who were, it seemed like they were superhumanly attractive or superhumanly charismatic, and 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 so on one reading, that's what's going on here, right? That that Homer is trying to give us an explanation for what it means when you meet somebody like that, which we've we've mm. all had that experience. You fall in love with them immediately, you know? Yeah. It's also very cinematic, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can, because you know exactly how that would be filmed, right? You know, the the something would be done with time, something would be done with the camera, the light would glint in a particular way, maybe like the wind the wind would blow their hair out. I, <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. I feel like when Telemachus comes in with a spear, it would be like in a Bollywood film where there's always a wind blowing the guy's hair, <laughs> and um, and everything's in slow mo. Always but none of those tropes existed when Homer was writing this. It's like he in, he invents slow mo centuries, millennia before the cameras even invented. Oh yeah, but you're right. It's terribly it's terribly cinematic. It, do you it, think it, it, do you think it could be cinematic too, though? Because this was an oral medium, though. 
I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a, right, if they're, you know, cause people are, if people are getting this, being told it, not reading it on a page, if I'm a storyteller, if, or if I'm, you know, telling this epic to people and I'm describing Telemachus walking in looking super noble or whatever, I'm going to be walking across the room with some swagger to kind of show what's happening, you know? And so maybe that's one reason it feels cinematic is because these were things that were, you know, these were stories that were going to be told to people. Not even necessarily people weren't just going to be sitting down reading them flat on the page. And I, that, mm. I, just, I just now thought about that. But that could be one another reason that it's so visual. And um, because, you know, you're you're helping someone to imagine a story. Um, you're acting it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as much as you're as you're saying the words, um, it's not not the same thing, but it's kind of like how. A lot of students don't get Shakespeare till they see it performed. This is much easier to read on a page than a Shakespeare play, but I do think it's useful to remember that people were told this. They didn't read it on a page. Yeah. Well, and the, at least in Plato's day, we know this from the Ion, the, the person who would recite these poems was really an actor. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think that's a good point. Doesn't Aristotle in the Poetics maybe is it is it Aristotle who talks a bit about how the, the the accounts that he knew of how drama originated and and talks about it sort of growing out of ever more elaborate and dramatic recitations of things like the Homeric epics? It would certainly make sense because I mean, really, what's the what's the distinction between an audio book and a radio play? You know, it's two voices. That, that's what the that, yeah. that, that's the distinction, and and that that that's an innovation that happens. Um, is, is 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 Thespos the person who's supposed to have introduced the the second voice into drama and like invented the whole thing? Anyway, you can see how it would develop that way. Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, Aeschylus gets credited with uh, a lot of it. Um, I, I was thinking I, I, Aeschylus and, uh, brought the third person in, but maybe maybe Aeschylus brought the second person in and Sophocles. It's it's the number yeah. of people on stage at a time. Anyway, yeah, that's not here nor there. It's all in the poetics, <laughs> <laughs> or the introduction to the poetics. I've got I've got to say sometimes I, I forget what parts were in the introduction to a text and which parts were in the text when it's something like the poetics. Oh well. Uh, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up, Katie. That, that wouldn't have occurred to me because I've always pictured, not people reading this, of course, but I've always pictured the, the, um, the bard, like, strumming a lyre and chanting in a monotone. But, I mean, is there any reason to think that's what happened rather than a more dynamic presentation of the story? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. I don't, I don't actually know the answer, but I, I just, you know, thinking about how people tell stories now who are experienced trained storytellers, you know, um, to the, the best way to make it come to life is to, to some degree act out or do with you do different things with your voice. Um, and so, and which, and that it, it makes it, it makes it even more interesting too, because it's stories instead of stories instead of stories. So the story is being told to people. And in the Odyssey, there are so many times where Odysseus tells a story of what or happened. A bard tells a story of exactly. what happened to Odysseus. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, it, so it's it's like Inception. Kind <laughs> of. There's there's all these layers of storytelling. <laughs> well, and then you know in the in the chapters you know a few episodes ago, listener, when uh, Odysseus is in the underworld, and Odysseus is telling a story to the Phaeacians about how he was told a story by someone he met in the underworld. Right. <laughs> and you're like, you know, three layers deep. Uh, I found that passage, that passage that you were talking about, Katie, where uh, Athena is goading the suitors on to violence so that Odysseus will hate them more. Um, and it's just after line 390 in the Fagel's translation in book 18. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, one, one point that I thought was really fascinating is the reaction of the suitors after Antinous throws the stool. Uh, he throws the stool and curses uh, Odysseus uh, violently, threatens him to skin him alive, 
uh, as Fagels translates it. But then the, the other suitors react in line 531. The rest were outraged, even those brash suitors. One would say to another, look, Antonus, that was a crime to, stri- to strike the luckless beggar. Your fate is sealed if he's some god from the blue. And the gods do take on the look of strangers dropping in from abroad, disguised in every way as they roam and haunt our cities, watching over us all our foul play and all our fair play too. So they warned, but Antonus paid no heed. Now, that's fascinating because we've seen that they did give food to Odysseus. But I think maybe we now realize why they gave food to Odysseus. If they've got this sense that, you know, he could be, he could be a, he could be an undercover god. You know, waiting to judge us when we don't obey the laws of hospitality, rightly. Which is another sentiment that goes throughout the poem. Yes. The Cyclopes, uh, say that as well. Right. Uh, that that invocation of of Zeus as the one who enforces the laws of how you treat the stranger, um, but this seems to be if this is their main motivation, you know maybe this is something that is also revealed in the scene. Yes, they gave him food, but not out of any particular concern for the beggar. It's it's pro forma, and it's uh, out of out of this sense of. You know, real fear. I mean, they are inside of the world of Greek myth. I mean, it could be Zeus. Like, there are stories about Zeus doing that stuff. <laughs> it's interesting that one thing they don't consider is that it could be Odysseus. Right! Like, that's the exactly what's happening. Over. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, they're wrong, but they're right. <laughs> they are being judged. Yeah. It's an irony. Sophocles did not, in, or uh, yeah, Sophocles did not invent dramatic irony. I think that's going on here too. Well, uh, what else? Uh, we've we've been going for about an hour. Um, is there anything else that we want to uh, bring up to round out our conversation? Because. I would just like to direct everybody's attention to that encounter between Odysseus and Eris at the beginning of Book 18. Oh, yeah. Eris, Eris is among the most loathsome characters in in all of Homeric literature. Uh, really kind of uh, wonderfully loathsome. Uh, here's, here's how Lombardo describes him. And now, this is the opening to Book 18. And now there came the town beggar, making his rounds, known throughout Ithaca for his greedy belly and endless bouts of eating and drinking. He had no real strength or fighting power, just plenty of bulk. Arnaeus was the man his mother name his mother had given him, but the young men all called him Eris because he was always running errands for someone. He had a mind to drive Odysseus out of his own house and started in on him with words like this, and then, you know, he starts taunting him. What's interesting to me uh, about Eris is that he is essentially a manifestation of the suitor's lifestyle. Like he is them with even (laughs) less virtue and even more leeching. And yet they don't recognize that and they have no compassion for him whatsoever. It's like they've they've brought him to life by squatting in Odysseus's palace for, for low these many years. Um, and, and, and now they have this just kind of expression of, uh, venality, uh, waddling through the Ithacan streets. So this sort of like living golem of their own, you know, uh, uh, of their own sloth and their own greed, you know, walking around and they don't recognize it as their image. Yeah. Yeah. yeah look at that idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he, um, shockingly too, I mean, Eris calls Odysseus a filthy glutton. Uh-huh. That's the first, one of the first things he says to him. You know, he says, be off, old man, and some other things. But then he says, you filthy glutton. <laughs> I have a good mind to lay both hands about you and knock your teeth out of your head like so many boar's tusks. Like he's projecting <laughs> his own like failings so many you. boar's tusks. That's hilarious. Did y'all get that his name is a joke? Well, it said that they call him that because he runs errands, but I don't I don't know Greek. Well, his name is Eros, which that, that would be a, a masculine ending. But if it was Iris, I R I S, 
it's the it's the goddess who serves as uh one of the two main messengers for the Olympians. Uh-huh. Um, or Iris. The goddess oh, of the, sure. the goddess of the rainbow, right? She 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 carries a lot of messages, um, especially for Hera. Uh, in the Iliad, and she also serves that function later, and uh, in when Virgil decides to do his fan fiction in the Aeneid. Well, and she's also so, the uh, she's also one of the goddesses who comes and destroys Heracles' life at the at the midpoint of the uh, the Euripides play. Awesome, but basically that means that they call him Rainbow. <laughs> it's kind of cute. Wildly, wildly not unfitting. <laughs> so any 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 last thing that you want to point out before we round out this episode, Katie? Um the only other thing I would like to point out is just that one of the last things that happens in the section we read for tonight is another one of Athena's um attempts to ratchet up the tension and drama in a situation that's already at a boiling point, which is that she puts it into Penelope's head to come downstairs and display her beauty to everyone. <laughs> um because that's totally going to make things better. Um, and it, it was kind of jarring because it's one of those times when she she has someone do something that they would never normally do. And in this case, you know, and I mean, and, and it's this is thing could be dangerous for Penelope to do. You know, these guys have been hanging around forever. Um, and, you know, she they're a threat to her. Um, and yet Athena pushes her to come downstairs, show everyone how beautiful she is. Let me find it. Um, I'm looking for it now. I'm sorry. You're you're right, though, Katie. Like, how is the situation going to be improved by all those suitors being incredibly horny? Right? It doesn't make – okay, here, I found it. Then Athena put it into the mind of Penelope to show herself to the suitors that she might make them still more enamored of her. There you go. And win still further honor from her son and husband. Like, look how much everybody wants me, I guess. As if I just had an already... image of Athena coming down like in that meme and hitting them in the face with a baseball bat and say, you go to horny jail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's already like some kind of ridiculous documentary about running walruses fighting. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Yep, it's true. Oh, my word. Oh, Athena. Athena loves her drama. You know, like, if if Athena was a human being, she would just love her stories. Right? But this Athena makes her stories, and she makes it with real-life people. Yeah, I said earlier today, they're like, it's like they're, they're, they're play dolls for her. Well, um, she's, the, she's the goddess of strategy, right? Of military strategy. Yeah, that's true. So she's she's running a long-term... Strategy here. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me either, but I'm not in the military. Oh, she also makes her more beautiful before she goes downstairs too. Well, yeah, you know, just <laughs> to make certain, you know, she's got to she's got to close the deal. She can't leave anything to chance. As um, one and then, will. What? As one will. Yeah. As you do when you are, you know, just <laughs> which, and I, it's hard for me to think of any of this without thinking of the gods and. uh the the gods up in Olympus in uh, oh, which movie is it? Um, which one has Maggie Smith? Is it Clash of the Titans? Clash uh, of the Titans is a movie. Yeah, the original I Clash think, of the Titans. I think I, yeah, I would think of Maggie Smith. Yeah, that's the, the um, original Clash of the Titans. That's right. There's a bunch of I mean, there's a bunch of well-known people in it, but that's what I think of. I I, I think of you know Athena kind of up there in the, in the clouds, which is stupid. I mean, she's very physically present in the story. Um, you know, she'll walk up to him or you know, but I always think of think of her up in the clouds just kind of you know watching down and going and now this happens and she's kind of picking people up or moving them around like you know uh pieces on a board maybe that's a better metaphor than playing dolls is is a kind of chess metaphor since but she loves them too she loves at least she loves odysseus and telemachus yes so she's doing this she's manipulating them but in some ways she's doing it not just for her own entertainment because she wants good things to happen to them yes that's true yeah I mean, also, she's probably just a bit like it's been ten years since the the Trojan War ended, and that gave her ten years of amusement. Like, <laughs> well, but also her hands were largely tied 
for a long time, right? So she couldn't do anything for Odysseus because Odysseus got in the middle of this fight between Poseidon and Zeus. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So, and so, the su- <laughs> suitors ain't got no gods on their side. Oh, well, yeah, what god's going to stick up for those guys? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, they are not long for this world, but, you know, that that's a few episodes. <sighs> well, this was a fun conversation. Thank you all for coming on. Thank you, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Katie. I, yeah. I've had a good time talking over this. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dear listener, we hope that you enjoyed this conversation as well. We hope that uh, if you haven't been reading the Odyssey along with us, we hope that uh, some of the things that we've said have uh, intrigued you and made you curious to go uh, take a look for yourself. Um, you know, believe it or not, we, we're we just skimming the surface. You know, we're going to spend uh, however many episodes this whole season is talking through the Odyssey, and there's still a lot more that's going to have to be left on the wayside. They're still for you to find. If you've got any feedback that you want to send us, you can send it to our email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post it. Uh, on the show notes for this episode, uh, when they post on our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can also post messages, uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, we also have a network Twitter, uh, at CH Radio Network, if I remember correctly. Uh, we look forward to feedback from you. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, be listening for, uh, the next episode of Core Curriculum, uh, as we move, uh, a, a few steps forward uh, in the Odyssey towards the inevitable doom and the glorious return. The Core Curriculum podcast is a podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and uh, I wish you all grand weeks on behalf of Michael Farmer and Katie Grubbs. See you next time.